Blog Talk Radio. I'm Raina Scarsa. You don't have to be. Desperate House Witches is not a G, PG, or even an R-rated show. So, bad language, bodily function, dirty talk of any kind might upset you. This may not be the show for you. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by the incredibly wicked one herself, the amazing Dorothy Morrison. Please check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. The 2023 Home blessing ornaments are available, and like Auntie Raina always tells you, they come better in sets. Balls should always be purchased in pairs. Check out the social media page on Facebook for www.wickedwitchstudios.com, and you will find the direct link to that sale. Okay, so bad news, good news moment. We are going to be discussing modern witchcraft with the Greek gods. Bad news, Estrella Taylor could not make it today. Good news, we have Jason Mankey. Hi, Jason. Hi, Raina. It's good to talk to you again. It's been quite a while. It has. It has. I'm really excited, and I want to pick your brain. First question, though, is completely mundane, has nothing to do with the book. What are you looking forward to eating at Yule this year? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a good question. So we usually, you know, Yule, technically the winter solstice is a Wednesday, and we don't get to do a whole lot, uh, you know, that particular day. It's not a big day for us. So we we have a big dinner on Christmas, and we usually do tri-tip, which is a cut of steak that's really popular in mm. California, and I'm looking forward yeah. to that. And we cook that particular cut of steak because you can cook it in the oven, <laughs> and it, yeah, I'm usually watching sports, and I and I don't want to be bothered. I used to grill steaks. Uh huh. I, I okay. I can understand weird that holiday tradition. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Listen, I, you know we do the very Italian thing. Uh, we have fish uh, before uh, Christmas Day. Obviously, Christmas Eve we have fish in honor of my departed mother-in-law who would have, you know, been like, I don't care what you practice, but you're going to treat it like a Catholic holiday. Okay, fine. Whatever you say, Ma. So, you know, fish fish on Friday, or, or rather on Christmas Eve, and then on Saturday or Sunday. I can't even remember what day Christmas is this year, um, but we will be having uh, pasta with my special homemade sauce, and it's the tradition in our house. Yeah, I mean, Yule is not really celebrated in our family either. I don't know if it's because we were just raised, you know, Christian originally. So I guess that has, that still kind of lingers, but I really don't have a problem with it. You know, it just that, and that reminds me of something I've been going through at work lately. You know, people are so terrified to say happy holidays or Merry Christmas because everybody's so fucking afraid of offending someone. And, right, you, can't you know, win. you can't win. And my clients are even like, um, you know, because I'm not publicly out in business, you know, pretty much everywhere else but not business, although that may be changing. Um, but anyway, you know, it's, it's kind of like you can hear the person on the other end of the phone, the conversation is ending, and they're like, well, ha- um well, bless uh, Mary. Uh, they just—they're tripping over it, not knowing what to say. And I'm like, I don't care. Just say Christmas. It's okay. I'm not going to be offended. I, I just can't understand this continuous outrage of you know people who are like, you have to respect everything. I don't have enough hours to sit here and wish you every blessed holiday that I can think of. 
in this one conversation. So it's kind of like, you know, I guess some of us of a certain age are just so used to hearing Merry Christmas that we're kind of like, okay, fine, thank you. It's a well wish. What's the problem? I I tend to take things in the way in which they are meant. So if someone says yeah. Merry Christmas to me and they're being really sincere about it, and you know that they, they can tell, and I can tell that it means something to them to say that, then I might say it back to them. Every once in a while, though, you'll get somebody who'll be like, "Merry Christmas!" Like it's a big uh-huh. political act of bravery for them to say that, and then I like to shit yeah. on their parade. That's the only time it really bothers me. <laughs> And we've all met people like that, you know. Oh, yeah, I've met people like that, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I can roast you over the coals with what I know about the holiday season. You need to just be quiet, sir. (laughs) I'll take care of business. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Yeah, I mean, when somebody's being, you know, petty about it, that's a completely different thing. Most folks mean it as a well wish, as you would say to anybody, have a good day, Merry Christmas, um, I hope you have a wonderful holiday, whatever whatever it is. I mean, I just think people get ridiculous about it, as they tend to do about a lot of things, which kind of brings me in a roundabout way to talking about this book. Now, I don't know about you, but my introduction to the Greek gods was in school, through literature, the old Bull Finch uh, book of mythology. Was that true for you? It wasn't Bull Finch, but it was, it was a book, but it was like a children's picture book about the Greek gods. Ah. And I always, I always forget, like, the, the people who wrote it, but they were French. So I'm, like, saying it anyways. I'm going to screw up their name. But that, that's how I got into it, and I remember – reading that in kindergarten and first grade and reading it over and over and over again. Dular's or something like that. Um, Yeah, and by the second grade, I was reading, you know, more advanced stuff, you know, probably books for fourth and fifth graders, you know, with stories of the Greek gods. was a little confused back then because I didn't know how to say the names of the Greek gods. And my favorite sure. is Persephone. I used to call Persephone Persephone because <laughs> Persephone. there's just no there's just no guide, right? There's just, like there's no right. explanation of how to say these words. For Astraea yeah. too, it was very similar. It was a love that started in elementary school and then continued forward. Yeah, and the Greek gods are sort of one of the foundations of Western literature. You don't go through sure. school without reading at least something involving the Greek gods, whether it's something like Edith Hamilton or Bullfinch's mythology, or you end up reading the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, yep. which I also read in high school. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're really hard to escape from. Yeah, and, you know, I want to talk about being petty. I get concerned that, you know, with the way certain school systems are now, um, you know, my kids are adults, so it doesn't, currently apply in my life. I guess if I ever have grandchildren, it it might. Um, But, you know, with this revisionist uh, history that some of the more fundamentalists want to push towards, you know, with these eliminating certain books, um, you know, LGBTQ themes, they they don't want that. I wonder if there's ever going to be a push to get rid of mythology. You know, classic things that that we um, loved as younger folks, and, you know, I would hate to see that taken away. And it occurred to me that if if we ever go back to a Trumpist kind of situation, that that is not off the table, and, and I'm concerned about it. And I'm kind of grateful that you and Australia did this book because it, it keeps it alive. It keeps it propelling forward it's it's this is like the new version with the better information than what i had when i was first learning about the greek gods so i'm really kind of fascinated do you ever think that there's a risk that books like the book you had as a child or the bullfinch or or whomever are are 
possibly in the crosshairs of something this stupid? It wouldn't surprise me. Uh, one of the things I think about the Greek myths is all of the stuff that offends those uh, culture warriors is in Greek mythology. Yeah. I mean, Zeus transforms into, you know, into a female at one point to try to seduce one of Artemis's nymphs. I mean, there's a certainly sort of a gender ambiguity uh, amongst some of the gods, or, you know, that yeah. they transcend the gender of their birth. That's there. Patroclus and Achilles in the Iliad are clearly having a romantic relationship. They are more than just yep. friends. All of the male Greek gods had male lovers. Oh, there, there's so much there for people to hate. However, a lot of times our versions of those mythologies have been really sort of sanded down, right? So like these edges that make people uncomfortable have been taken from the myth. So you have retellings that are designed to not make people feel uncomfortable, right? And I think they'll survive in that sense because that's what they've always done. People have been trying to get rid of the Greek gods and Greek mythology for 1,700 years now and have been failing really hard over and over again. You know, uh, there's just something about these figures that people just can't quit. Yeah, I mean... It's beautiful because they incorporate all aspects. of. I mean, even though they're gods, they, they incorporate aspects and, and retain aspects of human frailty in the most basic and beautiful ways, you know. Um, it, it's, I've always been in love with the Greek pantheon, and I know a lot of people get a lot of shit for mixing pantheons. I think you and I might have had this conversation once, but I'm not sure. It could have just been playing in my head that happened. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people have different views. I mean, I'm, I'm polytheist, so I believe, obviously, in multiple gods. Um, but some folks do have a problem mixing gods. Do you find that to be a problem, or is that something that you don't do? Oh, so one of the reasons I wrote this book was out of spite. I had somebody ask me that question over the weekend when I, Stray and I were, were doing some touring together for the book. It's like, why did you write yeah. this book? And I said, spite. And one of the reasons for that spite is people really gatekeeping the gods, especially people yeah. who pretend that they really serve these gods and know, know the gods intimately. The Greek mixed pantheons all the time. Isis was worshipped in Greece proper in certain areas. You know, she was imported from Egypt and was worshipped there. A lot of the Greek gods have origins outside of Greece and were worshipped. And then once you get into the Roman era, there are uh, pieces of art everywhere with gods from various pantheons. I think most people know that I'm pretty much into the horned god. And, you know, there's a lot of images of Kernonos with Mercury, Hermes, Right and Apollo. I mean, there's the ancients cross pantheons all the time. For someone to suggest that I can't do that today is the height of lunacy. I mean, I think you should try to make sure that what you're working with is compatible. But ancients certainly mixed pantheons all the time. It wasn't an issue. Yeah, I I don't have a problem with it. And you know, it's funny because in my life, it's it's been incorporated kind of unconsciously, you know, my husband's car is named Zeus, my car is named Gaia, and my son's car is named Demeter. So for all different reasons. And, you know, the the Greek gods are the first gods I truly fell in love with because they're really the first gods I was exposed to in a real sense. And I do credit my education for that because we were, you know, there were certain things that were required reading, and Bullfinch was one of them. And, you know, just, just that we had that kind of exposure, I feel very fortunate because it brought me, it brought me interest to them uh, so much sooner than before I even started practicing actual magic. So I, you know, I was very heartened to hear that you guys were writing this book, but I was like, you know, Jason is like the master of the duet. You know, you have co-written <laughs> some really great stuff. 
So how did how did you and this, I wish Estrella was here. I'm still missing her right now. But I, how did you guys decide to do this? And how did you decide to? I mean, were you asked to do this? Um, is it just an idea that you guys had had and had been discussing lightly and then one of you got really serious about it? So, Estrella tells me that when I met her in 2017, uh, we met at Pagan Spirit Gathering, which is an event put on by Circle Sanctuary. And at that point, Estrella had been writing fiction. She had published two fiction books. We were talking about writing. And she said that suddenly we started talking about writing a Greek gods book and I was like, of course, I'll write that with you. So I had signed up for it when we met. I don't remember that conversation, <laughs> most likely because I was not sober. <laughs> but I remember <laughs> having con- having conversations about it by 2019. And then at one point it was something we were going to do, and then we kind of decided that the timing wasn't right. And then in 2020, during the pandemic, we decided, hey, maybe we should do this, right? Let's see if we can give wow. this a go. And we said – and we submitted that book to Llewellyn, and they really weren't very excited about it. Um, my editor had really? to suggest to the rest of Llewellyn that, you know, well, maybe it won't sell very well out of the gate, but it'll probably still be in print in 20 years. Isn't that good enough? So they let us, so they let us write this book. And every time you write a book with somebody, it can be a different experience because everyone comes in with their ideas of how to write a book with somebody else. When I wrote... The Witch's Altar with Laura Tempest-Zakroff, we really just divided different things up. Like, Jason, you can write about the history because you're good at that, and I'll write about this. And, you know, within 15 minutes we had a working outline. That really wasn't the case with this book. We kind of talked about how we wanted it to look and how we wanted it to flow. And one of our ideas was there would be a little history section about each of the major deities. When I say major deities, I'm talking about the Olympians. There are 13 Olympians, and then there are a couple of major deities after that that don't live on Mount Olympus, but they're deities with big mythologies and histories. I'm talking deities like uh, Hecate and Pan and Hades and Persephone, Hercules. So, you know, all of these major deities get this history about them. We thought we would ask practitioners to write about their personal experience because while Estrella and I both love a lot of the Greek gods, we don't work with all of them, so we thought it would be cool to get various perspectives. And also it would mean that there would be less of the book for us to write, which is nice. And then (laughs) we thought we would have a section called Working With, and I thought it would be all rituals, I mean, because that's what I like to write are rituals, and I think I'm good at it. And Estrella, though, surprised me. She wrote spells for her bit when she did the Working With section, and I think that's great just because it shows the different ways that you can work with deities. Yeah. So we had this idea pointed out for the book. And then we had a discussion, like we had a, a meeting set up. I think it was maybe August or September of 2020. And it was, you know, she thought we were just going to talk about the book. But I came in there with the expectation that we were going to assign parts of the book. So, you know, we're talking, and I'm like, uh, I'll do the history of Artemis. You know, now you pick. What do you want to do, the history of Apollo or whatever? And she told me later that she was a little blindsided by that. So we kind of divvied really? that up. And then there are a couple of other things we wanted to work on. Like she wanted to write a little bit about Greek spell structure, which I thought was cool. And I wrote a little bit about how ancient Hellenic ritual was conducted I thought it was important to include as many gods as we possibly could. So there's a section in the book that looks at other major deities. I think we call it popular Greek gods. They don't have as much written about them as some of the other ones, but they still get a couple of pages. Gods like Helios, for instance, Eos, the goddess okay. of the dawn. Yeah, um, Eris. Eris is pretty popular. She got a big section. Ariadne, the wife of Dionysus. You know, some of them were ones that we liked, and some of them were ones that we thought other witches were really attracted to. And then there's a, a big section in near the back which kind of lists everybody else, you know, what they are, primordial forces like goddesses and gods like chaos and Tartarus. 
sometimes we think of these as more like places than actual deities, yeah. but sometimes they're both yep. talking about the rest of the titans that weren't in other sections. And then, you know, some of the other de- deities that aren't particularly written about enough to have a giant section. But, you know, you want to talk a little bit maybe about Harmonia or the goddess Dion, who was the mo- mother of Aphrodite in some myths. Talk about the muses yeah. and things. Yeah, so... Yeah, we had a plan, and we and I think we executed it well, and I think that we both got to write about things that we wanted to write about. What we didn't do, though, is, like, I didn't read Estrella's parts of the book and then go in and critique them or rewrite them. You know, like, if one of us was writing a section, we pretty much just wrote that section. There's a couple of instances. I think the introduction has her name on it exclusively, but I might have written three or four paragraphs at the beginning of the book. But, yeah, it was it was a good experience. She's a really great writer, uh, so it was fun. I know. Yeah, no, I love her. I think she's amazing. And I like her as a person. She was on the show a year or so ago, and, and I had such a blast with her. I'm like, will you come back on? And that's before I even knew about this book. And, you know, because the show books out kind of the – kind of booked out far, and I was like, you know, I don't care if you have anything to talk about. I just want to talk to you. So, yeah, <laughs> so I'm going to have to have her on again. So she's not escaped me quite yet because I am going to ask her again. But, listen, any time I get with you is time I enjoy. Uh, we were talking before we went on the air that, you know, we're in the same space sometimes, and we don't get to even say more than a few sentences of, hi, how are you, and get a hug, and that's it. And I don't see you again for days. You know, it's kind of crazy. But I'm I'm very thankful that you came on, uh, even though she wasn't available, too. But I love my time with you. But I do, about this book, though, I'm a little, not disheartened, but I'm a little concerned that you had to sell this book. Um, to the publisher, I would have thought that this, because this is like a fresh take on things. You know, listen, bless them, but the Bullfinch book was heavy and a lot to carry. And we carried it for weeks because it was required. You know, thankfully, this book, it doesn't give, I mean, it's not every single God. Obviously, you'd have to write volumes upon volumes. But this is a beautiful overview and some interesting stories. And because I'm a fan of other podcasts, I caught something out of my ear the other day, and I was like, excuse me, masturbation what? So I figured, you know what, he's coming I'm just going to ask him about it myself. So what was the situation that surrounds that? <laughs> so, I mean, this is my, this is my ninth book for Llewellyn or at least mm-hmm. my eighth book, depending on how you how you add up my half books, right? But this is the ninth book that I've written, and I've written a lot of rituals and a lot of shit uh, yeah. during that period of time. And it can be difficult to come up with, you know, new and interesting takes, right? I don't want to do – I don't yeah. want to write rituals that are a repeat of other rituals that I've written. I, I don't want right. to just – copy myself over and over again. So Pan is the god of masturbation. You're you're living as a shepherd in the fields and you're all by yourself and all the nymphs you've been chasing have been turning into reeds and other things to avoid your sexual advances. So, you know, you're just sort of left with your hand. And I decided maybe I would write a masturbation ritual for Pan in the book. And that's what I did. I'd almost written something like that for the Horned God book when I was really going through some, uh, like, uh, like writer's block with that particular book. And then I decided against it. But I had mentioned to people that I was going to write something like that, and they all found it really hilarious. <laughs> and they were like, I want to see that. You need to share that. You need to put that in the book. So I kind of revisited it, the idea for this book and, and put it in. I will say, though, once Estrella saw that, he's like, I'm not sure we should put this in the book. But it also Aww. made her decide that each of the sections should say who wrote it. So 
you know, yeah, when, know when you open the book, <laughs> when you know when you go to the magic with pan section, it says by Jason Banky, and below that it just says a personal sexual ritual. So yeah, you know, it, it's tough writing stuff. You got to try different things. I thought it would be kind of fun maybe to give that a go. You know, I mean, everybody does it, Raina. So why not put it in a book? Uh, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. I, that's that's, that's brilliant. Jason's contribution to the discourse. Yeah, but, I mean, are people still really that freaked out over sex? I mean, come on. I think there should be more... Uh, sex magic written about certainly individual se- listen honey sometimes somebody else is tired and all you got is you there is nothing wrong with that any sex magic can be useful so I'm totally in favor of it not only that I wish there was more written about it especially sex for one in magic I think it's a great fucking topic, but that's me. What can I say? Folks, if you so agree I remember, with me, I remember. message Jason and tell him that you want him to write a book about sex magic for one. <laughs> oh, geez. No, no, no. I got so much to do. Um, I will say, though, I was talking to Llewellyn about a lot of this stuff, and I was like, how was editing that? And I think somebody told me, well, I had just edited Storm Fair, who will uh, Sater's Kiss book, and what you Great put book. in there was like, yeah, but it was it was so vanilla compared to that. It didn't phase me at all. But yeah, I mean, I think that there is still a hesitancy to talk about sex on the printed page. I don't. I think yeah. one of the things about the magical community is it's never particularly been prudish. There are times I think when it has been maybe a little too sexually charged. Uh, especially back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Sure. But even then, you just didn't see it on the page very often. That still seems like a very new kind of thing. And I think because of its newness, people aren't often sure exactly, you know, how to approach it, what to say about it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I understand that, and it can be a touchy subject, but the type of, thing you're talking about was a very, you know, male-female type of thing. I think we've evolved past that to a certain extent. That's why I'm like, yeah, you know, a book about sex magic through masturbation, personal for one person, for yourself, is a wonderful idea. I think all kinds of rituals can be written around it. It can be used. That energy is so amazing and so, you know, fill, it fills the air. When you've had a great orgasm, that energy is there to be used. Why not direct it well every time? You don't need to have a partner of any kind to have that kind of magic be directed somewhere. I think any sex magic uh, can be used. Now, obviously, back in those days that you're talking about, wasn't always used in the most savory way. But I think, you know, as a as a personal part of your magic, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it can, you know, relax you and enhance certain aspects and you want to send some of that love out. I think there's all kinds of things that can be done with the topic. But, hey, you know, Hippie me, old lady hippie, what can I say? I, I think it's an awesome topic. <laughs> I would love a book about it. Just for me, listen, like I said, sometimes your partner is tired or out of town or non-existent. There you go. Just saying. I am, yeah, I'm happy with how it came out. Uh, you know, like it could have been something that was a little too graphic or not graphic enough. I think I just, I think I hit the high point pretty right in that ritual so yeah uh, that and that was a, that yeah. was a fun one to write and experiment with <laughs> and I love that I really do I you know and it's not just one of those you know I don't know how to put this delicately so I fucking won't um it's basically you know you you do put thought into it it's not just 
a little jerk before work. Thank you, Chris Rock. You know what I mean? I mean, you do put, mm. it is a real ritual. It is a real, you know, thing to be done. I just hope people will relax themselves a little bit and appreciate the awesomeness of it. I mean, the book is super cool. You've got sections where, you know, it's working with the magic of this deity or that deity. And as you mentioned earlier, some of it's ritual, some of it's um, uh, not spell work, but like um, potion work, uh, which is also spell work, obviously. But there's all kinds of different cool shit in the book. But I love the fact that you you brought it up to date because, again, what the stuff I was exposed to was very um, literature-like and and probably shifted in a number of ways for the younger mind because, you know, we did start reading this in in junior high, middle school, um, and then into high school. So, you know, the fact that you've kind of modernized some of it, and I, I know that you had some stuff that surprised you. Were there things you learned that made you go, well, shit, I didn't know that? I think for both of us, as I said earlier, like we didn't all we didn't have relationships with every deity, right? I mean, there's only so much so much time in the day. There's only so much research yeah. one can do, et cetera, et cetera. And there's only so many relationships that you have with deities that are particularly close. So for some of the yeah. gods, we kind of entered not cold because we'd read their myths and we knew some things about them, but not a amount of a great amount of detail. So for me, while writing the book. I really ended up, when I wrote the Artemis, Zeus, and Hera sections, I had some mm-hmm. ideas about these deities. A lot of those deities were formed through mythology. And really getting into how they were worshipped in the ancient world revealed some things to me and really changed how I view these goddesses. And got, so Hera is a great example. If you read the mythology okay. of Hera, it's not particularly nice, right? Right. I mean, most of what Hera does in Greek, yeah, most of what Hera does in Greek myth is punish the illegitimate children of Zeus and their mm-hmm. mothers. It's not their fault that Zeus, you know, is always playing the field and doing what he does, but, you know, she can't punish Zeus, so, so she takes it out on Hercules, Heracles especially, whatever else. And it doesn't present Hera in a particularly good light. You don't think to yourself, wow, this is, a, this is a deity I'd like to spend some time with. And yet, in the ancient world, they loved Hera. I mean, people really, really loved Hera. And people were close to Hera. And Hercules, Heracles, who we often think of as being sort of the biggest target of her displeasure, she's like his name comes, it, his name means the one who won fame through Hera. And it's mm. likely that originally he was a servant of the goddess Hera, and then over time that myth gets transformed. So much more positive light. Zeus always feels really remote and, and hard to understand. And you read mythology about Zeus, and it's mostly about the philandering or him stepping in and being the ruler, the king, the one in charge, it feels like this is not a god that you would be able to form a really close personal relationship with. And yet ancient Greeks thought of Zeus as their friend. And I love that word friend. It implies something so personal, right? Not in close. It, it implies a closeness and not a remoteness. And that's how they thought of Zeus. And you just don't get that through the mythology. You really have to kind of go in and read a bunch of, you know, scholarly books about how the gods were worshipped, where they're quoting letters and other things, and to see this personal relationship develop. So, yeah, that was great. To learn those things was really fun. Every book is a journey. Oftentimes, doing the research can be a slog. It's not fun. In this particular case, though, I found myself really actively enjoying it because, Every day was sort of a learning experience when I would settle down with whatever it was that I was reading to learn more about these various deities. It was great. It was great. 
uh, sometimes too you're surprised. Uh, I am not a devotee of Hecate, which I know is blasphemous to some witches for someone to even suggest that. And if you read a lot of academic books on Greek religion, she is not a prominent figure. She's very much a secondary figure. Walter Burkett, who who wrote a book called Greek Religion, and it's sort of the armchair historian's guide to Greek religion. It's a scholarly book, but it's pretty accessible. There's usually three or four pages about every Olympian. They get some substantial space. She gets like two or three sentences. I mean, it's a, it's a tiny amount of stuff uh, because for the most part, she was a very secondary figure. But you go in and then you read things with more detail about her. And even back then, she had this group of really devoted followers. And it's fun to, yeah. to look at that history and, and why it was like that. And she, like, she's written about in Hesiod's Theogony, and he writes about her having dominion over all these things as a gift from Zeus. And one of the theories about that is is that maybe it was inserted at a later time, or maybe Hesiod's family was part of a Hecate cult, which to me is really fascinating. So yeah, it was, it was fun. It was fun to write this book. Yeah, you know, and now that you mention it, sure, you know, Hecate is really, has really done this amazing prominent jump to the fore in the last 10 years or so. It's like she, more than that even, 20 years maybe. And, you know, now she's kind of everywhere. Why do you think that happened? Well, I mean, I feel like the gods have agency. Right, and things happen for a reason. And she's a she's a very mysterious goddess. I think that adds to some of the alert. And she's called out specifically as a goddess of witches. I also think that she's a goddess. You can see whatever it is that you're looking for in her. So in the 1950s, we, uh, something really fascinating happened. Robert Graves, who wrote The White Goddess in the late 40s, he came out with a book of Greek myths. It was his retelling of myths, and he retells the, the story of Persephone and Demeter. And in that story, Hecate helps guide Demeter to Persephone, who is down in the land of the dead. When the story is done, Graves offers some commentary, and he says, obviously, the story of, Pers- of Demeter, Persephone, and Hecate is and is an allegory or like an allusion to the idea of maiden mother crone with Hecate as the crone goddess. Anyone who knows Hecate in the ancient world, she was portrayed as a young woman, often conflated with Artemis, who was a very often a very, very young woman. I mean, we're talking 14, 15, someone not truly having reached adulthood yet. So to pretend that Hecate is a crone is really different. I mean, it's, changing that mythology in real time. And it's something that's been embraced by a lot of people. So Hecate is sort of a, you know, transformative figure. She could be a lot of what anybody wants. And it's really contentious in some circles because there are people like, well, she's never been a crone goddess. And for anybody to suggest that is really terrible. But at the same time, it's been suggested and it's something that, seems to appeal to people, and I think that gods can be in a multitude of forms and take forms where we recognize and get to know them, and I think that's a lot of her appeal. I mean, I from a historical perspective, I have a lot of issues with her portrayal as a crone, but I can also see why some people really seem to like that. Well, I think people, you know, as they do with humans, and we do with each other, we try to put them in this position in our life where it's comfortable and we recognize it. And I think we often do that with our deities too, you know. I mean, I look at Hecate not as being prone or maiden or mother. I'm just actually probably more mother, um, you know. And in that regard, I feel towards her the way I feel towards Tara. You know, they're they're very protective. They're very jealous over what is theirs. I mean, there's a lot of, to me, there are a lot of similarities. 
you know, I, I was laughing because when you said Hera initially about one of the things that surprised you, I actually have a pendant of Hera that I wear. So I'm like, yeah, no. And people are like, she's got that, you know, jealous energy. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I safeguard what's mine. And, you know, all of, I, I can identify with that energy. But that kind of mother lioness type of energy is what I attribute to both of them. So I, I get it. You know, I think of them both as being powerful and strong and jealous and protective and all of these things. So I guess, you know, folks attribute whatever they want to, I suppose. With that well, particular... I'll say... oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, one, of the, one of the things about the Greek gods, which I think makes them more appe- so appealing, is they have the same sort of passions and desires and in some cases, flaws that we have. They're not perfect. They can feel rage. They can feel jealousy. They can feel betrayal. And as such, they're much better sort of windows into human existence than if you read the New Testament or the Old Testament or whatever, and you have Yahweh, who's just sort of a god of jealousy and rage in a lot of the Old Testament, and then you have Jesus, who seems pretty perfect in every way. It's really hard to see ourselves in those figures. And within, in the Greek gods, we can always be ourselves. And I, I think that is a reason that they've been popular for so long. Yeah, I, I think humans want to identify with something in the universe as being like us. I think it, you know, sometimes reading Greek mythology, seeing how gods go through certain trials or handle certain situations and to me, they're all kind of like lessons of life in certain aspects. And I agree, a hell of a lot more than the Judeo-Christian themes, for sure, where you're constantly trying to ascribe to some kind of perfection that may or may not exist. You know what I mean? It's, it's a weird thing, you know. I, I think it's easier to believe in something that looks more like us figuratively, if not literally. So, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. It's not necessarily why I became polytheist, but hey. So I wanted to ask you, um, was there a particular deity that you felt closer to after reading more about them? Uh, Zeus and Hera stand out, but Artemis is one of them. I I really found myself loving Artemis while I was working on the book. And I love Artemis for a lot of different reasons. You know, we, we talk about the evolution of the gods in the book. We talk about sort of their Roman side, too. I mean, the Roman deities existed, be, like, at the same time as the Greek gods did. It's not like the Romans imported the deities of the Greeks wholesale and gave them different names. Those gods had already existed in Rome. But what they did, uh, the Romans did, was, they imported the mythology of the Greek gods and attached it to these deities that they had already been worshiping. And, you know, with Artemis, it's Diana, which is kind of her Roman equivalent. And for a long time, Diana was the most famous goddess of witches, you know? So, uh, you know, part of that is because in the New Testament, Diana is the only goddess that is named. So if you needed to name a goddess from pagan antiquity. A lot of people just named Diana because that was the only one that they knew. But Diana also shows up at the end of the 19th century in Arabia. We often think of the star of that book as the goddess Arabia. But Arabia comes to earth to teach people how to worship her mother, Diana. And almost all of the prayers are about the power of great Diana. And I, I liked reacquainting myself with that. And seeing the power of this particular figure and, you know, trying to honor it a little bit more in my own life. I, I really, you know, I've bounced around so many different deities for so long and, and Greek always comes back to me. So let me ask you this. Is there a possibility or do you think it would be redundant even to write about the Roman 
gods. Now you're saying that these gods already existed because I've heard so many people have said, oh, you know, it's the same gods only renamed in another language. And you're saying, no, your research tells you that that is not the case and these gods already existed in Rome. So is that, does yeah. that just speak for another book? No, it's not. I don't think there's enough there. When when they really diverge, we talk about that a little bit. So the Greeks, for instance, didn't particularly like Ares. And this was another one of those cool things that you find out while you're reading a book. The Greeks did not like Ares very much. He was not a popular god. You know, Ares is the school bully. Like if you're going to get into a fight, you would like to have Ares on your side because he's a great fighter. But if you want to win a battle you call upon Athena, right, because of tactics. So the Greeks didn't like Ares very much. Zeus in the Iliad talks about his son and goes, you know, if you were anyone else's kid, I would have thrown you out of here ages ago, which is a terrible thing to say to your child, right? Yeah. So Ares is pretty bad, but in Rome, Mars is second only to Jupiter in prestige and influence. In the Roman Empire, you know, amongst ancient Rome and some of the early emperors. And he was an agricultural deity in Rome, you know, before he became more equated with Ares. So sometimes there's, like, major differences amongst these deities. But I don't think that there's enough there to uh, have to do another book about. We try to include some Roman deities in the back of the book in the appendix. You know, when we kind of go through like lightning rounds with the gods and goddesses, we talk about yeah. the Roman equivalents and I guess how they're different from the Greeks in spaces, yeah. you know. And then there are certain Roman gods who were imported wholesale from Greece. The Romans didn't have an equivalent to Apollo, for instance. So when they adopted the myths of the Greek, they just, they just adopted Apollo wholesale with his name. Apollo is Apollo whether you're in Athens or you're in Rome, for instance. We have been asked, though, if we might write something like modern witchcraft with the Celtic gods or modern witchcraft with the Norse gods. And that seems more doable and more likely than maybe writing modern witchcraft with the Roman gods. Though even then, there are a lot of challenges to write those kind of books. One of the things about the Greek gods is there's a lot of literature about the Greek gods going back thousands of years. And a lot of these other pantheons, there's just not that uh, historical record. We have myths of the Celtic deities, but those were written down hundreds of years after the conversion from ancient paganism to Christianity. So they're a little suspect. They were probably things yeah. that were changed. The same is true of the Norse gods. We feel like we have this really accurate representation of the Norse gods and the Edas and, the, and all the sagas and things. But that's not really the case. They were written down by Christians. They've been Christians for a couple hundred years. And we just don't know what Loki was really like. And I'm guessing he was probably a lot more benign than he was made out to be later on. So that those kind of books would be challenging, but they're not out of the question. Uh, I really like the format of this book. If you are somebody who wants to work with one of these pantheons of deities, so it might be something that we do. I don't know. Well, let me ask you this: considering what, yeah, no, I mean, considering what you went through to get this book done, do you think now? Because I think the book is amazing. Do you think your publisher is more willing to perhaps entertain that next? with the Norse gods or the Celtic gods? It would depend. We'll see in six months to a year. Right now, though, the response has been really good to this book out of the box. I know that Amazon didn't make a big order to start with, but they sold out of what they did order quite quickly. And I think right now they still are saying, if you order this book from us, you won't get it for another four weeks you know, because they don't have any in stock. So that's kind of neat. And we were on some of yeah. the paganism bestseller lists and stuff. So maybe, you know, they might be more willing to listen. I do think it helps sometimes when you have two authors. So there are people who are fans of Astraea 
who really enjoy her writing and like what she has to say. And then, you know, there are two dozen people who really like me and read what I have to say. So, so when you have two authors come together, you know, you're bringing both of those authors and readers with them. So that, I think that helps with book sales too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially when you have two popular authors and you know, the two dozen people that like you, you're hilarious. But the fact of the matter is, is that you are a very well-written person, a very popular author. Um, so I would be like, yeah, let's do another one of these. But, you know, I want to compliment you, Jason, because there I know you say things like, well, it cuts down on how much work I have to do if I'm doing it with someone else. <laughs> it does. But there has to be, well, I, I, and I understand that there is some fact to that. However, you know, we're people and we have egos. And, you know, it's a genero- there's also a generosity of spirit to say, hey, let's do this together and, um, you know, put this book out. And, you know, because you do have a career, Jason. Sorry, and you know people will respect you. You're a respected writer. I mean, don't shit on the compliment. Say thank you. Um, but uh, I, I, I am thankful, and I'll admit I love writing books with other people because one of my big kind of um, I don't know, like tenets of witchcraft, maybe maybe tenet is a good word, is that there are no absolutes. There's no one way to do anything. There's no one way to right. think about something. And when you write a book with somebody else, you're, you know, absolutely sharing two different perspectives with your audience at the very least. And a lot of books that I've written over the years have included small guest passages throughout the book. When I was writing all the tool books, there were a lot of those in The Witch's Athame, The Witch's Altar, The Witch's Book of Shadows, in uh, uh, what is it? Um, I have so many books sometimes it's hard to it, it's hard to remember all of their titles. The Witch's Book of Spellcraft has a lot of spells from other witches. Again, showing that there are lots of different ways to do spells and to do magical work. And this book has 22 or 23 different outside writers in addition to Estrella and I sharing their experiences with the Greek gods. And I love that. And oftentimes, too, people who have shown up in one of my books as someone writing a small guest passage, two years later, they have their first Llewellyn book out. That is so gratifying. See, and that's generosity of spirit. And I just want you to know that, obviously, I'm not the only person who sees it, but I do want you to know that it's so much appreciated that you do these what I call duets, even though sometimes there's a whole lot more writers like in this book. Um, but I think it's a beautiful thing, and and I think you're an amazing human being and certainly someone I respect, and I just think you're fantastic. And it's very cool that you continue to write these books with other people. But I also wanted to ask you, are you working on anything solo right now? I'm writing a biography of Raymond Buckland. So that's <laughs> like the big project, you know, that's, that's taken up a lot of time. And I'm also going to write a book with Phoenix LeFay, who's a writer I really love. Her, her yeah. What is Remembered Lives book from, I think, three or four years ago is still like yep. my go-to, somebody says. How do I develop relationships with, the de- with deities and other higher powers? I'm like, just read this book. It will explain it all. So she and I are talking about writing something. I'm not sure what it is going to be yet. But I'm gonna. I know that within the next year, I'll be writing a book with Phoenix. So I'm excited about that. So yeah, the the duology of Jason continues. And what's even better is, I always write these books with other people, and then every once in a while, somebody comes up to me and they're like, "Hey, I saw your wife's workshop. It was really good." And I'll be like, "What? My wife didn't do a workshop at this festival. Hell, she's not even at this festival." And then I'll figure out that they think Tempest is my wife or. Estrella is my wife, or Phoenix is maybe in the future. Phoenix is my wife, which is a real compliment. I mean, yeah, to me because they're they're amazing women. But at the same time, you know, I have my wife. Her name is Ari, <laughs> and I write about her extensively in a lot of my books. Yeah. Hey, listen, you know that that is a compliment because 
I know all of these women you mentioned, and they are all amazing human beings and gorgeous, and gorgeous inside and out. So, yeah, that's fantastic. I'm I'm tickled to death. But I did want to ask before we before we go, I wanted to know when the Bufflin book is coming out because I'm very excited and interested. Oh, I'm not even going to be turning that book in for another six or seven months, and then after that, best case scenario is maybe a year before it's published. I'm guessing probably yeah, I'm guessing Christmas so. of 2024, you know, and it takes a while. The, the, the process is slow with Llewellyn. Once you turn a book in, it usually takes at least a year from that date that you turn the book in, often a little bit more, because um, there's mm-hmm. additional edits that have to be done, and they have to figure out the cover and all kinds of things. So, so this is a biography in the truest from the very beginning up until the end? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I obviously wow. we'll focus on parts that I think are going to interest people the most, right? And I'm not sure that his childhood is going to be like a big part of it, but obviously yeah. it's a part of the story. Also, you know, there'll be some deep dives on some of the books that he's written. I mean, The Big Blue Book, whether you love The Big Blue Book or not, it's sold over half a million copies. It is one of the most read Witchcraft 101 books of all time. And even today, if you go to Salem, Massachusetts, and go into a witchcraft store, every store has 50 copies of Buckley's Big Blue Book. I mean, it's still a bestseller today. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about some deep dives into some of the books and things. And, yeah, hopefully it will be wow. of interest I, to people. I think it will. Is this your first real biography attempt? It is my first and last biography attempt. <laughs> it's just it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to be in someone's head for a long period of time, and it's just yeah. a really different experience than writing like a history of a god or something. So yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a compliment to be asked to write the book by Llewellyn, mm-hmm. and I've met a lot of people in Ray's life and who've been really great, and they've been super supportive of me writing the book. But it is it is a lot of work. It's a real challenge. You know, it's it's not a skill set that most of us are taught. You know, we don't take a class on how to write a biography. You know, a lot of the things that I've written, you know, you can kind of narrow it down to, you know, little sections here and there, and that makes it easier to write in little chunks. But, you know, a little chunk of Ray, you know, of Ray is like looking at a couple of years of his life, and he did some pretty tremendous things. I mean, he's one of those dudes who completely changed witchcraft in the United States forever. I mean, his fingerprints are all over everything that we do today. Oh, I totally agree. I'm really excited about the book, though. I'm ecstatic. Can't wait for it. Um, But in the meantime, (laughs) before we go, Jason, tell folks how they can catch up with you. Um. I think I'm going to leave Twitter in the next couple of days, like most of us, just because yeah, that's, that's a cesspool of shit. Um, the Silicon Valley Witch right now on Instagram, usually my handle in other pieces of social media is at panmankey, which is the word pan, and my last name, Mankey. I'm also easily findable if you just Google my name. There are only three or four Jason Mankeys in the entire United States, and I'm the only one who's even close to sort of being famous. Well, those other ones probably despise me because <laughs> when they Google themselves, all they see is shit about me. <laughs> so, yay. Yay. <laughs> That's awesome. You Google my name, you get a whole bunch of strippers, but I figure it's good company. That's all right. Um, hey, I'm, that's what I'm Googling as soon as I get off this, uh, out of this <laughs> interview, seeing what there is to see, baby. I love you to death. Anyway, the book is Modern Witchcraft with the Greek Gods, written by Estrella Taylor and my wonderful guest, 
Jason Mackey. Jason, thank you again for coming and hanging out with me for the hour and talking about this amazing book. Thank you for having me, and hopefully next time we do it, uh, we'll get Australia here with us. Absolutely. You're always invited, and, and so is she. Can't wait to talk to you again. All right. Here. We're crashing the party. Thanks, Raina. It's always fun. All right, hon. Thank you. All right, guys, I will be back next week. Um, I think that you'll have to check the show listing. I can't even – I'm so tired right now. It is, I've been at work since 5.30 this morning, and it is now 12 and a half hours later. Mommy needs a nap. Anyway, I love you guys. I'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.